Welcome to the 441st episode of the Jamie Delaney Plant-Based Wellness Podcast. My name is Jamie Delaney and I'm your host. I'm a plant-based cardiologist and endurance athlete living in Southwest Florida. Welcome and thanks for listening. Well, coming back from my reverse taper, slowly increasing the mileage. Um, I talked before about our new dog, 3-0. He's progressing quite nicely. We managed to average about a 13-minute pace with stop and sits and uh, behavior modification education. Uh, So we're doing pretty good coming back, so it's kind of nice. You know, doing it slow with him and being real patient. He's learning to uh, do a little jogging on the left side, and we're being very safe so we don't go down together. Um, Then I'm starting to go back to the hills because we're headed back to Colorado in August to um, man an aid station at Hope Pass, which is over 12,000 feet. So we're going to hike up to it, do the aid station, and hike back, and hopefully do some running. So I want to keep my legs in shape for the hills. Um, so I'm starting to do my treadmill hills again, uh, someplace from seven to 15% uh, for about a mile to two miles. So that, that's good. Uh, working on the back progression. So, you know, I'm committed to uh, getting my posture set and my core intact so it'll handle longer and longer miles. Next race for us is um, 100K in Texas and then our swim run. So we've got to get back to the pool. Uh, this time of year in Florida, we're starting finally to have some afternoon thunder showers, so it makes afternoon swimming a little bit difficult, but I'm, I'm going to add a morning day of swimming in. That's the plan here in the next couple of weeks, so that's all good. Um, thanks to Hurricane Ian, our mango trees, um, they're coming back, but they didn't have any mangoes this year, so we are finding some mangoes uh, from some various people and a couple trees along the way, so we're getting some fresh Florida mangoes, which are delicious, but the uh, season's about coming to an end, um, so that's kind of sad. Do have some papaya trees springing up, so they've been blooming, so we might have some papayas here uh, before long. Otherwise, it's uh, just hot and humid here in Florida, and we have our own personal sauna, so going out and sweating and um, getting rid of a bunch of toxins as I'm sweating to the heat. I like listening to a variety of podcasts myself. And often when I listen to plant-based podcasts, um, some with people that are have des- describing their own health journey, um, doctors are thrown under the bus quite often. A lot of times for a good reason, um, but we're all lumped together um, that, you know, we don't have any nutrition training. Um, we just don't take any time with people. We uh, follow certain protocols. Um, we only have one way to do it. We know the cure, but we, we're in it for the money. Um, and I, I'm going to take a minute on this podcast to kind of dismiss, dismiss that. Um, certainly if you've had that experience with a physician, um, I would apologize right now for, for the rest of us. Um, but decision making, um, is not easy for a lot of people. And in a lot of instances, both from the patient aspect and from the physician aspect, the practice of medicine is an art. And when anybody takes that away, um, then I think that quality suffers. And when I say it's an art, I mean that it's not artificial intelligence. So, uh, you know, the the latest buzz is, you know, we'll feed the computer, uh, the artificial intelligence program, 
you know, 10,000 papers and it will come out with the best scenario and this is what you should do. Um, so this will be the most effective treatment. But, you know, as we've learned with a lot of other things, information is only as good as what kind of data that you put in there. So when you put skewed data in, uh, the decision often is not going to come out correct anyway. Uh, a lot of medications come out and then when they're introduced to the general population, we see a lot more side effects than we never saw coming. Um, but being a physician is much more than reading papers. Um, being a health coach is much more than just looking on the internet and Google searching what might be wrong with somebody. Um, it, it takes a hands-on experience to actually understand what's, what's going on. And making a decision for your own health is very much a personal matter. Everybody is unique. Everybody has, if you know, we've talked, I've talked to Jill Bolte-Taylor, um, who is a neuroanatomist that had a stroke. And we talked about, you know, in her insightful living and left brain functions. And we all have a left emotional brain. That's our file cabinet of all our lives experience and what we've been through and uh, our outlook on life. And that plays a huge role in to how we ultimately make a decision. And not only is our personal beliefs, but um, you know, what we've been through, your medical history, not every, no one has the same past medical history, have had the same diseases, the same interactions, the same set of medications. And often, you know, medications are tested individually, but they're not tested in a whole hoax of medications. So it can become very difficult to, to see what's coming. There are people that are free spirits that are always going to do what they want to do and do their own research and forge their own path and find their own answers. And then there are people that, you know, uh, want to be told what to do and are very much willing to follow it and are very happy not to be involved in the decision-making nor in the responsibility of, of their own health care or their own health. And those two decision, those two areas are, are perfectly fine, uh, but just like life, um, everything's not black and white and they gray. So people forging their own path sometimes get to the point where um, they, they want to have somebody help take over things. And on the other hand, some people that want to be taken care of aren't happy with the way things are, are being taken care of. So um, nothing is, is necessarily straightforward. The problem with being a physician is you can't be wrong. So we take data that are often skewed and have to make a decision and give a treatment plan to someone that we really don't know the future and everything that goes into it and do it somewhat quickly. Therein lies the problem. And that's why I think that artificial intelligence is not the way to go. Um, in my practice, it's always been a detailed history and physical. And I've known most of my patients for a number of years. And their first visit's long and an hour and a half. It's not just a form that people fill out. We, we make people fill out a form so we have a general idea and what their goals are. But the reality of it is we talk about everything in person. Uh, it's not you fill out a form and I give you a diagnosis. And I don't think it should be that way. And I don't think you should take somebody else's history. Uh, it needs to come from the person that's it's their, their body and uh, what's going on with them. So I do believe there's nothing that replaces a detailed conversation with someone to find out what their wishes are, what their goals, and what their beliefs are. 
there are a lot of people that don't want traditional medicine and they would like something else, but the something else they don't really want either. Um, and again, when it comes back to physicians can't be wrong, uh, people say, well, my doctor won't take me off of statins. My doctor won't take me off of blood pressure medicines. My doctor wants me to take this and do this therapy. Um, doctors are taught the best practices. And unfortunately it's become more and more like that, that this is what works for the majority of people. Um, hopefully. And if you don't do this, you're wrong and you're liable. So if something goes wrong and you didn't follow the standard protocols, then you went against the standard therapy of care. And so you're liable for that patient's outcome, regardless of whether that therapy would work for that patient or not. You didn't follow the protocol or what's held to be the standard of care. Treating someone's blood pressure to a certain number, treating someone's cholesterol to a certain number, giving these three things if you have cancer, doing these procedures on a regular basis. These are things that the medical establishment, the allopathic establishment has deemed correct practice of medicine. And we're taught a lot of that. We're also taught a lot about how things work. But in the day and age where it's um, how many people can you see and how short of time period, a lot of that sitting down and discussing what might be best for an individual is, is kind of lost. But nevertheless, we still have to be right. So now you have to make a quick decision and be right. When someone wants or desires an alternative therapy, a plant-based diet, uh, instead of taking cholesterol medicine, uh, instead of taking insulin or a diabetic medication, it's a little bit scary for the regular physician because if they don't follow it, you're going against the protocol and, and you're liable. So even if the patient does what's not the standard of care, even though um, they said they would do something different, um, the doctor is still ultimately held responsible. So the problem is the patient doesn't have to be responsible or necessarily. Um, and sometimes the patients say, well, I am responsible, but it turns out that they're kids don't believe that their patients are responsible. So not only do we have to treat the patient, but we have to treat the patient's family because if they're going to do something alternative and it doesn't work, then it still comes back onto the physician and makes things very, very difficult. So when everybody talks about all the things that physicians do wrong or don't do enough of or do too quickly, that factor only applies to physicians and not the rest of the world. If it doesn't rain at three o'clock this afternoon, the weatherman uh, gets, you know, if my car breaks down before it should, um, you know, so be it. Um, there's a lot of things in life that doesn't happen. But again, we can't be wrong because sometimes it, it's a matter of life and death. Even though most of us know we ultimately don't really have that much control over life and death. One of the things that I have learned being a cardiologist for well, i'm going to you do the math since 1993 is that you can't predict with complete certainty who's going to do well and who's going to do poorly despite your best efforts oncologists don't want people to die and are deathly afraid if they don't follow the standard of care that somebody will die they also know that there's terrible side effects with most of the medications that they give, but some people make it despite those terrible side effects. And that if they save just one person, it'll be worth the risk that they've had to take in other people. And there's just, they've done their best. And so we all 
kind of go with we've done our best from a physician standpoint and from a patient standpoint. We've, we've done our best. So alternative therapists, I want to do nutrition therapy instead of taking a cancer therapy or a screen scares physicians to best to death because again the thought of being wrong i think as physicians we have to listen to what people really want and once we understand what people really want then we need to help define that there are some people that can't give up eating meat or smoking cigarettes it's a known thing despite their best efforts they can't give up chips they can't follow they can't walk the walk for any particular to period of time those people we have to be able to talk to very openly that then perhaps traditional medical therapy is best for them along with all its risk and potential side effects but at least they're doing something as opposed to continuing down a path that's that's not working on the other hand, we have to be very supportive of people that are on a path that have changed their lifestyle, exercise, and nutrition, and things are working, and work with them to be able to stop some of these medications and have the guts to observe things and see that things are getting better. And again, go with the patient's wishes on you know um, how they want to handle their medical care. But that's not going to happen with a computer uh, system um, people need to communicate and know what path that they're on and have an agreement. And, and, uh, you know, I think a, a lot better care would be given all around. A lot of therapies don't have their consequences too well down the road. Uh, we're seeing that with some vaccinations where, uh, that have been contaminated in the past. Polio was one, uh, that was contaminated in the past. And, uh, issues there. We see it with radiation, left-sided radiation for breast cancer. People are having coronary artery disease. So I think we have to have a frank talk with people. Are you at risk for coronary artery disease? Is the risk of coronary artery disease worse than the risk of recurrent breast cancer? Um, there have been a lot of procedures recommended for fear tactics. If you have abnormal genetics or family history, should you have your ovaries and uh, uterus taken out. And now we know that um, taking out, uh, doing a hysterectomy and oophorectomy uh, has shown to increase the risk of cardiovascular disease down the road. We're putting people into premature menopause. We know uh, they may have an increased risk of colon cancer. We know when we take people's gallbladders out that, that we're changing their gut microbiome and changing their ability to handle Billy, uh, bile and, and, um, bile acids and cholesterol may change. And, you know, um, a lot of risk down the road. The alternative would be nutritional therapy. Um, it can change a lot of these, uh, but again, people have to be on board and it's not, um, you know, I heard somebody talk about the other day, well, I added a little bit of this into my diet or I'm eating a lot more salad. Well, eating a lot more salad doesn't do a whole lot in the presence of continuing to eat a whole lot of protein or a whole lot of animal pro products. So it is, you know, uh, nutritional medicine, I believe, has a huge benefit, but you actually have to do it. So half-hearted 
plant-based nutrition gets you half-hearted results. And you hear people say, well, I tried it and it didn't work. Well, maybe it didn't work for them because they couldn't give it the full effort that they needed. And that's where the hard conversation has to come in. Are you willing to put the effort into this to get the outcome that you want? Since the introduction of electronic medical records, there's all kinds of reminders and incentives for Medicare to do prevention and preventative uh, preventative testing. And a lot of people um, think that prevention is just early testing. So my doctor is checking my carotids. My doctor is doing yearly blood tests. We're checking my hemoglobin A1C. We're doing colonoscopies. We're doing mammographies. But that's not prevention. That is at best early detection that also can have side effects. Prevention would be what you do to try to avoid the onset of disease to start with. Procedures often have side effects or lead to other tests that have side effects or lead to treatments that also have consequences. So an early detection of some sort of tumor may lead to a therapy that ultimately causes another problem in another system that wouldn't have happened if you hadn't detected something earlier and that potential cancer may have not have caused a problem anyway. Prostate cancer is a big one uh, thing that falls into that realm. Most men die with prostate cancer, not of prostate cancer. That doesn't mean you, you can't die of prostate cancer, but the majority of men will die with prostate cancer. It is very responsive to nutritional therapy, but you have to do it. The treatment for prostate cancer is unequivocally associated with side effects. There's not one therapy that doesn't have significant side effects. Nobody talks about it because nobody wants to talk about it, but there is bleeding and incontinence and other uh, osteoporosis. There's all kinds of consequences of aggressive prostate therapy, but we're taught that that cancer is more scary than the consequence of the therapy or oh well we had to do it because the fear of the initial diagnosis is so much worse than what possibly could happen if you normalize your blood glucose and reverse your diabetes you decrease your risk of cancer and heart disease if you treat your blood pressure you decrease your risk of dementia and alzheimer's disease if you don't smoke you decrease your risk of a whole host of things uh, that that caused problems. I am amazed at how many people still smoke. Uh, the path that I run every day is full of construction workers that are laying new sewage pipe and water pipes in my area. And I would say that 85% of the people in the morning are smoking cigarettes. And I, and I can't help from wonder how much of their paycheck is actually going to buy cigarettes that are burning up um, while they're getting ready for their job. And of course, the health consequences thereafter. There was a study done looking at um, the length or the telomere length length of white blood cells or leukocytes. So longer leukocyte telomere length is uh, associated with cardiac size, function, and the risk of heart failure. So again, um, looking at white blood cells and the telomere, which is like the end cap on the genes, and when that end cap starts to erode and become shorter, then the DNA can fray and bad things happen. So 
um, vascular disease. So genetic, the, our genetics start to go amiss. So whether it's in, uh, the onset of cardiovascular disease or the onset of cancer and so forth. But if the telomere length is long, then we have projection and longer telomere length has been associated with longevity. So they looked at this study and looked at white blood cells and the telomere length, and they noted that the people that had the longest white blood cell telomeres, they had a slightly bigger heart, better function, and a lower risk of heart failure. Decreased telomere length was associated with heart failure and an increased risk of coronary artery disease. They adjusted that for age, sex, height, weight. Still, there was association with the longer your telomeres are, the less likelihood that you had to have heart failure and the better heart function that you had. If you're, and so when we look at left ventricular size, you know, the first thing you think about is, oh my goodness, why would anybody want an enlarged heart? Um, but think athletic heart. Uh, so our, we have a heart, um, if you've had grade school anatomy, there are four chambers. The ventricles pump blood. The right ventricle pumps blood to the lungs. The left ventricle pumps blood to the body. The atria are the top chambers and they prime the pump. So the blood comes in from the body into the right atrium, in from the lungs to the left atrium. They give a little squeeze and they put the, as much blood as the heart can stretch to fill. Think about a balloon. So if the heart muscle is really stiff, it's hard to stretch it out with that little extra kick at the end. So the left ventricle squeezes a little extra blood in, primes the pump, and then the left ventricle squeezes and oxygenated blood goes throughout the body. You can stretch that heart to a certain degree and it, then it bounces back. Just like a rubber band or a slingshot, you pull it back till it's taunt and release it and then there's a contraction. Normal left ventricular contraction or what we call an ejection fraction is about 55 to 60% of the blood comes out with each beat. When your heart rate's fast or you're running, you can put out a little bit more. Um, people that have long-standing high blood pressure, the heart muscle tends to thicken, but the cavity size stays the same. So you can get less blood in the cavity and it becomes stiffer, so it's hard for that left atrium to prime the pump. So sometimes blood can actually go backwards a little bit because you just can't get enough blood into the left ventricle, but because that muscle is thick, it contracts very vigorously, but it's ejecting greater amounts of blood, uh, it's ejecting less amount of blood, but at a greater force because of the muscular size. We don't want that. We want a proportionate cavity and muscle. So we want the biggest amount of blood we can get into the heart along with the ability of the heart to stretch, but not too much so that it can contract. So if you think about an old rubber band and you stretch it and you stretch it and you stretch it, it doesn't bounce back into place. That happens when people have a cardiomyopathy or what we call a dilated cardiomyopathy. So the muscle actually gets stretched out. It becomes thin like an old elastic and it can't contract back in to eject the blood out. That is one of the most common etiologies of what we call heart failure. So the heart fills with blood, but it can't get it all out. The left atrium continues to try to put blood into the heart, but there's no room. 
And so it backs up into the lungs. It backs up on the right side into the body and people get swelling of their abdomen, their legs, and they get short of breath because the blood's going back into the lungs. That is called heart failure, whether it's left heart failure with shortness of breath and congestion in the lungs, or right heart failure, swelling in the abdomen and the legs because of fluid into those tissues. So ideally you want to be able to fill the heart with blood and then eject it out in an efficient manner. When someone has an athletic heart and they've developed their cardiac function fully, that's exactly what happens. They've got a bigger heart, a bigger muscle, but it's proportionate and they can eject the blood that they need to eject with each beat so that the heart can fill nicely. Think about endurance runners. Think about athletes. So again, an athletic heart is what we would associate if we now go backwards from longer telomere length. That's exactly what you want to see. In the previous studies that have looked at calcium scores being elevated in endurance athletes, yet they have less events, the great study to me would be to look at the telomere length of those ultra endurance athletes to see whether despite the elevated calcium score, do they still have longer telomere lengths? My guess is that it would be so. So that we know that exercise is beneficial both to the ultra endurance athlete and to the regular everyday person. Is that a good way to preserve your telomeres by exercising and of course eating healthy? We know that a plant-based diet helps to preserve telomere length. But I think it also throws even more importance on the maintenance, maintenance of a good exercise regime. On the other hand, increase oxidative stress from eating poor foods, uh, meat products, things that we have metabolic waste from that we have to work to tie to, tie to, to uh, degrade. So oxidative stress decreases telomere length. Inflammation decreases telomere length. Obesity decreases telomere length. There was a study looking at telomere length in children and overweight children tended to have shorter leukocyte telomere length already. And that was a risk factor for cardiovascular disease in these kids. It can be reversed, especially in the child population. But as we know, often it's overlooked as far as childhood obesity goes. So when you see an overweight kid, they're already shortening their telomeres in their white blood cells or the potential thereof to pretty much give them a increased risk of cardiac failure earlier in life than would have happened. Same thing with pregnancy. Uh, people that get preeclampsia, people that get gestational diabetes have a much higher risk of cardiovascular disease. So does a baby. Again, are we setting them up for genetic abnormalities early? Nobody knows, but um, I'm sure there'll be more testing. The question is, does more testing lead to more medication or to change the etiology of all this, which would be nutrition and exercise? Everyone seems to be afraid of not enough of when it comes to nutrition and don't do too much of when it comes to exercise. I think we have that wrong. Uh, people that are in the fasted states have improvement in their kidney function, improvement. The blood pressure normalizes almost immediately. The, the glucose numbers obviously uh, normalize immediately. People get better with less nutrition 
they get better with more exercise. I'm not saying that people can't ever eat. That's not compatible with life either. But we know that less is more and the type of nutrition we take in is very, very important. Everybody's encouraged to go for a yearly eye exam. Being blind is a fear that, uh, and a, and that nobody wants to have to address. Cataract surgery is done you know, daily. Uh, ophthalmologists line up as many patients as they can get in the surgery center in a day. There's never uh, a shortage of people needing their cataracts removed. Most people have never heard that cataracts are basically a response to problems with the retina. So the thickening of the lens is actually trying to protect the retina from damage. And a lot of that is oxidative stress uh, from what we eat, um, high insulin levels, poor blood flow. And so we treat we take people's cataracts off but we're not treating the underlying cause macular degeneration associated with decreased blood supply um, again we're not treating the cause eye health best thing we can do not smoke have a normal blood glucose decrease our inflammation and in what we take in by decreasing oxidative stress so plant-based diet best things that you can do uh, take in carotenoids, which are orange and yellow vegetables. Think red, orange, yellow peppers, sweet potatoes, carrots, anthocyanins, blueberries, black fruit, raspberries, currants, cherries, lutein. Uh, people think that they need to run out and buy an eye, um, an eye vitamin on top of the regular vitamin biggest uh, top 10 lutein vegetables dark leafy greens carrots broccoli sweet corn everybody poo-poos corn but sweet corn is a very uh, high in lutein cherries raspberries avocado and paprika which is a pepper so adding paprika to your food is good for eye health so adding these things into your daily regimen is great for your for your eye health Vitamin C is another thing that's good for your eyes. So we all think citrus, kiwi, watermelon, apples. Um, if you can get your hands on Barbados cherries, 80 milligrams for one cherry is the highest vitamin C of anything. Um, but getting your vitamin C is, is, very, is very important. Limiting your blue light. So you're sitting there staring at a computer, uh, your screen, try to limit it that. Eye exercises, looking distant as well as close, taking, taking timeouts for your eyes, do a few squats, go outside for a walk, look, look out. It's all tied together. Nothing, nothing works in a vacuum. So what we eat affects our eyes, our heart, our lungs, our joints, our immune system. How we exercise affects our genes, our inflammation, our immune system, our sense of well-being. My neighbor once told me, you got to die of something when he was eating something that I obviously don't eat. And that's true. Something will ultimately kill us. But the question is, how much responsibility do you want to take for your overall health? You are your best health advocate. Your doctor, your naturopath, your life coach needs to take time with you to understand your wishes and help you to take responsibility for your ultimate health and, and wellness. We try to be very blunt.
blunt with this and give people their options and let people know what we know and let them ultimately make the choice. If you're interested in having a lengthy conversation with a physician and having a lot of input and being in control of your own health, uh, and you want to do the, the leg work as far as exercise and nutrition, then look us up. We'd love to help you. Uh, you can go to Dr. Delaney, uh, D-O-C-T-O-R-D-U-L-A-N-E-Y.com, see what our website has to offer. You can email me at jamie, J-A-M-I, at drdelaney.com. We would love to educate you to the best of our ability and support you in whatever decision that you would like to make. I believe that you can make a difference in your health span with your daily decisions on exercise and plant-based nutrition. I believe that a doctor is more than a computer terminal that puts in facts and answers are spit back out at them. I believe that we can help you make the right decision for your life circumstances. Thanks for listening. See you next week.